Welcome, welcome, welcome everyone to The Dark Parts, a show where we explore the darkest parts of history, the world, and your mom. What? Or your mind. <laughs> I'm your host, Heath, and with me today, as always, is the lovely Queen of Scream, Daphne. Daphne, how you doing? I am doing fabulous. I just Excellent. got back from Seattle, which was really fun. I haven't been to Seattle in years, so it was nice to take a little trip. Good to be back in the studio with you, though. Yeah, and then as soon as you got back to L.A., you brought the rain back with you because we had a know, crazy uh, rainstorm. Wasn't that so nice of me? Yeah, it was It was great. Yeah. <laughs> I loved it. No, it was really cozy, though. We had crazy rain at our house in L.A. yesterday, So, um, but now it's like super sunny today, so I think that is behind us for a little while. But um, yeah, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Today, we're actually going to talk about the extension of of Tuesday's Going West episode. Yes. So for those who are new listeners or people who listen to the show who don't listen to our other show, Going West, I feel like a lot of you came from Going West, but Heath and I first and foremost host a true crime show that has been going on for almost four years now called Going West. We do two episodes a week. One of them came out two days ago and it was on the Amityville murders. And now we're talking about the hauntings today. So if you want to know, we're going to recap what happened with the murders for those who want the the storyline. But if you want all the details, we have like a 45 minute episode on Going West. So go check that out and then come right back here for the hauntings. Well, let's not waste any more time. Long Island, New York, known for many things like being the birthplace of musical legend Billy Joel, popular tourist spots Jones Beach and the Nautical Mile, and of course, the best bagels that you're going to find in New York, period. Oh, bagel sounds good. Yeah, it does. It's also a place where lacrosse is more popular than just about any sport in history, and it's also the inspiration for a great white serial killer film that you may have heard of. Dun, 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 dun. Doolie, doolie. <laughs> <laughs> but among all the things that Strong Island is known for, the paranormal and hauntings appear to be at the top of most lists. It's no wonder that TLC's spooky psychic celeb, the Long Island Medium, calls this 1,400-square-mile area home. But one particular house on the island has been the center of attention for decades, and one of the most prolific haunting sites in the world. So pour yourself a Long Island iced tea and make it stiff, because we're about to start the fire with today's New York nightmare that we call the Amityville Hauntings. So before we get into the walls oozing green slime and beds levitating off the floor, we feel like it's necessary to start from the very beginning and give you guys information that may or may not have been the inspiration for today's hauntings in the first place. Now, again, if you go listen to our other show, Tuesday's episode of Going West, which is episode 251 on the Amityville murders, it coincides with today's episode because years before any hauntings occurred, the brutal murder of a family took place in the very same house. And we felt like a double feature would be a great way to kick off November. And thank you so much again for Justin for recommending it. So let's get a little background on the house first, and then we'll get into a brief overview of the DeFeo family murders before we move on to some real spooky stuff. 
The Amityville house is located at 112 Ocean Avenue. Has a nice ring to it. But it was later changed to 108 Ocean, Ocean Avenue. 108 Ocean. <laughs> to deter tourists. And this is in Long Island, New York. And the house was built in 1927, hosting a total of five bedrooms and three bathrooms. It's roughly 4,000 square feet in size. And it's known as a Dutch colonial style home right on the water with two balconies on either side of the property, stunning colonial style window shutters, and a two-car garage. Now, this house was purchased by the DeFeo family in the summer of 1965. So, the DeFeo family consisted of car salesman Ronald DeFeo Sr., his wife Louise, their two daughters Don and Allison, and three sons, Mark, John, and Ronald, or Butch, DeFeo Jr., now, Ronald uh, DeFeo Jr. was the oldest of the bunch and reportedly had it the toughest being the first child. We do call him Ronnie in our Going West episode as not to confuse you guys. He goes by so many names. Yeah, Ronald, Ronnie, Butch, whatever the fuck you want to call him. So <laughs> Ron Sr., also known as Big Ronnie, expected more out of his firstborn than the rest of his children. And Luis's brother Michael Berganti Jr. later testified, quote, we were all sitting down in the basement watching TV, and I don't know, the boy had done something. All of a sudden, he stood up, the father, and just pushed the boy this way into the wall. The boy banged his head or part of his shoulder or something. Ronald Jr. was also picked on repeatedly during his school years for being overweight, with kids calling him names like the Blob and Pork Chop. The DeFeo family, originally from Brooklyn, were able to purchase 112 Ocean Avenue with the help of Luis's father because Big Ron wasn't able to do so on the salary that he made from selling cars. Now, it was later stated that even Ronald Jr.'s friends were afraid to come over to the DeFeo home because oftentimes Big Ron would either beat Ronald Jr. or his wife Louise. But as years passed, Ronald Jr.'s anger became even worse than his father's. And his parents even sent him to a psychiatrist because they had become so concerned about his violent outbursts and erratic mood swings. Now, this is when things really started to run off the rails because Ronald Jr. took to using drugs, which included LSD and heroin. At 18, Ronald Jr. began working for his father at the car dealership, and when he wasn't working, he was either doing drugs or drinking at his local watering hole, the Chatterbox. A server at the Chatterbox described him as, quote, usually a nice guy unless he was drinking. She remembers him getting too drunk and throwing bar stools and pool cues at people. There was also an incident with one of the DeFeo's neighbors in which Ronald Jr. told her that if she was a man, he'd punch her right in the face. And if her husband had a problem with it, he'd punch him in the face, too. <laughs> Super Jesus. fucking violent. Like, whoa, bro. He's just like, I'm, I don't care who you are. I'm punching you in the face. So now on the afternoon of November 13th, 1974, 23-year-old Ronald Jr. left work early and met up with his girlfriend, Sherry Klein. He was complaining that he wasn't able to get a hold of his family and that the cars were in the garage, but nobody was answering the phone. At around 6 p.m. that day, he made his way to a bar called Henry's, where he sat having a drink and complaining yet again to friends that he wasn't able to get in contact with his family. He said that he was just going to go home and see why they weren't answering him. 
Then, just 30 minutes later, he returned to Henry's bar in a panic and explained to the patrons there that his family had all been shot. A group of his friends left the bar and headed towards the DeFeo home, and when they arrived, they found the gruesome scene that was waiting inside. Ronald's entire family had been shot and killed while still in their beds in their pajamas. 43-year-old Big Ron had been shot twice in his lower back, piercing his kidney. 43-year-old Louise had been shot in her right side and her chest. Boys Mark, 12, and John, 9, had both been shot in the back at close range. 13-year-old Allison was shot once directly in her face. And 18-year-old Don had been shot in the back of the neck at close range. So Ronald's friend who helped discover the bodies, his name was Joseph, was the one who actually called police. And when they arrived, it was discovered that a 35 caliber Marlin rifle was used in the slangs. So Ronald Jr. told police that the day before the murders would have taken place, he stayed home from work because he was reportedly feeling sick. Now, he said that he watched a movie in the TV room and fell asleep at around 2 a.m. And the next day he went to work because he was feeling better. So this is him saying everything was fine when I left for work. And then later that day, couldn't get in touch with my family. Yeah, just happened to discover them all dead. Yes, at like 6 p.m. So Ronald was immediately questioned as he was the only family member that hadn't been murdered. And he claimed that a man named Louis Fellini who uh, he claimed was a paid assassin, was most likely responsible for these murders. He said that a few years before moving to Long Island, Fellini and his wife had lived with the DeFeos in Brooklyn. Ronald claimed that he had a violent argument with Fellini after Fellini and his wife had moved away. Fellini apparently criticized a paint job that Ronald had done for his father's dealership and described throwing a brush at Fellini, breaking the window behind him, and calling him a cocksucker. He said that his father told him that Fellini was a professional hitman and that Ronald didn't know what he had done by calling him names. Ronald Jr., by the way. Yes. So during this line of questioning by police, Ronald also admitted to using drugs and burglarizing neighbors' homes and that he was also on probation. He was apparently using his sister's urine to pass his court-ordered drug tests. The thought was that if he was truthful about these other crimes that he committed... Police would just kind of believe him when he said that he didn't kill his family. But a search of the DeFeo home revealed the murder weapon was stashed in Ronald Jr.'s bedroom. Police then really focused on Ronald Jr. And they asked him why he didn't eat dinner with his family the night before they were discovered. And he said, quote, My mother's a lousy cook, and she made some brown shit in a bowl I wasn't going to eat. He even described his brother Mark and John as fucking pigs and his sister Dawn as a fat fuck who played her music too loud, which is kind of crazy to me because you're literally being questioned for your family's murder and you're saying all this horrible shit about them. Yeah, probably. I mean, it's really not a good look. So it was obviously clear to police that Ronald Jr. had murdered his family and this was confirmed when he finally confessed to the murders. At his trial in 1975, his defense put forth an insanity plea claiming that Ronald Jr. had been hearing voices telling him that his family was basically plotting against him and they were just trying to explain to the court or prove to the court rather that he was possessed, which a lot of people believed. 
and they still believe. But the prosecution was not buying it, stating, quote, although DeFeo was a user of heroin and LSD, he had an antisocial personality disorder and was aware of his actions at the time of the crime. He was eventually found guilty of six counts of second-degree murder and sentenced to 25 years to life in prison. So again, if you guys want the full story of the DeFeo family murders in detail, do not forget to go check out episode 251 of Going West, hosted by me and Heath. But for now, let's move on to the main focus of today's episode, the Amityville hauntings. So after Ronald Jr. was sent to prison, the story of the murders really circulated all across the country and internationally. And the realtor, a woman named Edith Evans, figured that the house would most likely sit on the market for years because, again, six people had been brutally slain in that house. She's like, nobody's going to want to buy this house. Right. But boy, was she wrong, because just a year later, a family of five would end up moving in. And I I see it from both sides. I think some people don't really care. A lot of people look at it like, oh, people die in every house, you know? Sure, yeah. If you have a house up for long enough, someone's going to die in it. But I I think obviously there is that terrifying thought and understanding that somebody was murdered. Like in in a house we've lived in, we were aware that the very last people to live there, you and I, um, both died in the house and that gave us a really weird feeling on top of that we had a lot of weird stuff happen in the house so you and I felt like the house was totally haunted oh yeah we definitely uh, blessed that house smudged it with <laughs> yeah. uh, you know sage, yeah. with sage a lot exactly but it, I feel like it, it just happens in any house so some people don't care and this house was beautiful so maybe this was their thought question well, mark well let's talk let's about talk it about it so the Lutz family consisted of 28 year old stepfather and land surveying company owner George Lee Lutz, his wife, 30-year-old Kathy, her two sons, 9-year-old Daniel or Danny, and 7-year-old Chris, and also 5-year-old daughter Melissa. Now, George and his family were originally from Deer Park, Long Island, which is about a 22-minute drive north from the South Shore where Amityville is located. In 1975, They had been trying to upgrade and find a house that would suit their needs, but wanted to stay relatively close to the area. George had an office in Deer Park that he operated his business out of, but he was looking for a place with a home office so that he could do the majority of his work from home. Now, he and Kathy had apparently looked at between 30 to 50 homes in the area, but couldn't find one that really fit every need that they had. That is until George spoke with Edith Evans. And she said that she might have a property that would be worth checking out. Now, this is how Edith listed the home. Quote, exclusive to the Amityville area. Five bedroom Dutch colonial, spacious living room, formal dining room, an enclosed porch, three and a half baths, finished basement, two car garage, heated swimming pool, and large boathouse. Asking $80,000. Sounds great, right? I mean, it does. Five bedrooms, you know, there's uh, three kids, them two. So that's four bedrooms taken up all together if they all have their own rooms. And then there's a room for an office, right? Yeah. Well, what's crazy about this is like the house later on would be worth somewhere around a million dollars. So $80,000 in 1975. I don't really know how like the financials translate there. It's a good price. But it's a good price, yeah. <laughs> yeah, especially, I mean, again, this is such a picturesque home 
we will post photos if you want to see if you haven't seen it already. But, you know, George, he was obviously well aware of what housing costs were like because not only was he a land surveyor, like Heath said, but he had been looking for houses all summer with Kathy. So he he knew. And he figured for those details, as long as the house wasn't like falling apart, that was pretty much a steal of a deal. Like he was, it was one of those, it's too good to be true, which happens a lot in the hauntings. And, and maybe such. it was. Yeah, yeah. But to be fair, Edith did explain to the Lutzes that the house was previously owned by the DeFeos and that family had been murdered in the home. So they were aware of this. And she just figured that that would kind of be it. Like they wouldn't be interested in the house after her saying that. But much to her surprise, Kathy took one last look at the house on Ocean Avenue and said, it's the best we've seen. It's got everything we've ever wanted. And again, of course, if you're looking to buy a house, you have a family, it's a beautiful house. Something horrible happened in it the year before, but that person is in jail and it's a good price. You can afford it. You need to live somewhere, right? So some people think about it like that. That could be how they're thinking about it. Yeah, and they'd been looking forever. So they're like, wow, this is everything. Screw it. Let's give it a try. And again, George could finally work from home and not to mention that he had a 25-foot cabin cruiser boat that he had been paying far too much money for storing it at a local marina. And now he has a boathouse and home office. So such a score, right? Oh yeah, definitely. But before we get into the hauntings of the Lutz family, let's first take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. And we're back. So the Lutzes finally made their move to their new home on December 18th, 1975. But they knew that they had a lot of work that would need to be done to the home as it sat for a year completely empty. And also, George had plans to remodel, uh, remodel sorry, certain areas of the house. But there was another problem. George and Kathy didn't own a lot of pieces of furniture to fill out the house. But they were in luck because Edith explained that much of the DeFeo's furniture had been left in storage and George could purchase them for an extra $400. Now these items included a bedroom set for Melissa or Missy, their daughter, Ronald DeFeo's bedroom furniture, and a dining room set. I feel like drawing the line, I get it, you need furniture, but the bedroom sets, like they all died in their rooms. Like how much How much are we gonna utilize of their stuff, you yeah, know? in their beds also, and uh, now you have the bed frames. No, that's so, that's like drawing the line. Yeah. No, thank you. Yeah, exactly. But on top of this, he also got seven air conditioners. Why seven? I have no fucking idea. Two washers, two, uh, two dryers, a refrigerator, and a freezer for free. So she just like threw those items in as extra. Which is like, it's a lot of stuff on top of having a good deal on a house. Again, like very much too good to be true. Absolutely. So the same day the Lutzes had finally moved in, 
they had asked a priest named Father Ralph Pecoraro to come by the new house and bless it for them. Now, if you've read Jay Anson's book, The Amityville Horror, he mentions that the priest's name is Frank Mancuso, but it appears that this was just a made-up name to kind of protect Father Pecoraro. I feel like getting a priest to bless your house is so, like, 1970s spooky. Yeah, you know I feel what like I mean? it is. Well, and also... Maybe I've just seen a lot of movies with that. <laughs> we're also going to talk a little bit about George and how he... Uh, I guess he was into, like, some occult-type stuff, and um, Danny and Chris later said that he, like had books on Satanism and stuff like that. So Interesting. So it's kind of weird that he would have a priest come bless the house. But anyway, so he had count uh, this priest, uh, Father Pecoraro, had counseled George and Kathy before their wedding. So the couple kind of knew him pretty well. But that day, as explained later by Father Pecoraro, he woke up with, quote, a very bad feeling. It was later that day, just before his meeting with the Lutzes, that Father Pecorero found out from a friend what house he was really visiting. A friend asked, quote, where are you off to? Father Pecorero replied, quote, Amityville. The friend asked, well, where in Amityville? It's a young couple in their 30s with three children. They live on 112 Ocean Avenue. The friend with a strange look replied, that's the DeFeo house. Don't you remember the DeFeos, Frank? The son killed his whole family? Terrible, terrible thing. So Father Pecorero arrived to the Lutz's new dream home anyway, and, or so they thought was their dream home, at about 1.30 p.m. that day. He walked inside and began his normal ritual of blessing the home and flicking holy water around the room. And this was a bedroom upstairs. But just after he began, a masculine voice appeared out of nowhere and demanded, Get out. Thank you. Father Picarero was shocked by this because he had been the only person in the room at the time. So he didn't know where this came from. And he felt a presence that he just couldn't explain that gave him a very unnerving feeling. This had only been the beginning of a 28-day nightmare. The father finished blessing the house, and before he left, he asked George if he knew that this was the DeFeo home before he bought it, to which George replied, oh, sure, I think that's why it was such a bargain. It was on the market for a long time, but that doesn't bother us at all. It's got the best of everything. The priest asked George not to use one particular bedroom upstairs, but to convert the sewing room into a bedroom instead because he felt uneasy about the room that he had blessed. The first night in the home, George claims that his black lab, Harry, had been leashed to a fence outside when all of a sudden, Harry jumped over the fence and the leash began to choke him. Now, George felt like the evil the house presented was forcing his dog to try and commit suicide. Yeah, he. I, I, I was watching this interview later where he was explaining that, oh, my dog was like trying to kill himself. It's like, uh, maybe your dog just accidentally jumped over the fence. And I don't know, like accidents like that happen, I guess, sometimes. I don't really think it was an evil force, but who knows? By the way, the dog did not die. Yeah, thank God. So on the second night, which was December 19th, George and Kathy were asleep in bed when George awoke to a knock on his front door. Through the darkness of the room, 
he reached for his wristwatch before hearing yet another series of loud knocks at the door. When he finally retrieved his watch, the time read 3.15 a.m. He then peered out of his bedroom window and saw what he believed was a shadow moving its way around the boathouse, his dog Harry barking profusely. When he went to investigate this, there didn't appear to be anything there. But this would not be the last night that George would wake up to strange sounds at 3.15 a.m., which was later connected to the exact same time that it's believed that Ronald DeFeo Jr. murdered his entire family. I talk, We obviously talked about this time in the Going West episode of on the DeFeo murders, and I had mentioned that I always wake up at 3.15, and I've always been afraid of this time, and I got so many messages from people and comments saying that they have the same thing. Wow. I mean, it, Very I scary. guess it's a universal thing. If you wake up at 3.15 every morning, let me know. Start so, a club. Yeah. So George also claimed that in the days and weeks that followed, he had experienced unexplained personality changes. He had become extremely angry, and he would snap at his family over nothing, and his personal hygiene had also taken a turn for the worst, almost as if he had been losing his mind. And this is some very all-work-and-no-play-makes-Jack-a-dull-boy type shit. So it was also explained by George that no matter how hard he tried, he could never get warm in the home, and felt as though he was freezing to death, even though he was constantly building fires in the fireplace. Like, they were building fires in the fireplace every single day. His wife, Kathy, on the other hand, said that she experienced the cold presence of a ghost who kept touching her as she would do house chores. And she became so anxious by this that there were certain rooms in the house that she avoided completely. The couple also experienced swarms of houseflies in specific rooms, which seemed very unusual considering it was the dead of winter. Yeah, and also I heard that these swarms of flies were... They weren't all over the house. They were in very specific areas, like in just in one room. Very creepy. Yeah, weird. But one of the more unusual claims was that their five-year-old daughter, Melissa, explained that she had made a new friend in the home. So when George and Kathy asked who this new friend was, Melissa explained that it was a floating pig named Jody who told her that it was very pleased that she was living in the house and that she would live there forever and never leave. Yeah, and I guess Jody the pig also had red glowing eyes. Um, it's kind of strange because I know that this detail is in the movie and also in the book, but George also backs up this claim that there was a floating pig with red eyes. I mean, it sounds kind of creepy, but... Sounds also, very, like, sounds very weird, strange. I've never heard of, like, a ghost of an animal being seen, you know? Yeah. It's always people. <laughs> maybe that's hey, maybe that's more believable. Okay, I don't know. Uh, maybe so. So the 3.15 a.m. visits continued to plague the family, but now with screams heard in the night and footsteps running along the floorboards. The doors and windows of the home began to open and shut on their own at all hours of the day and night, and according to George, drops of gelatinous bubbling goo began to drip from the keyholes of the doors and also appeared on the walls and the carpets of the home. Now, depending on who you ask, these goo drops were either green, red, or black. Yeah, kind of strange. He also said that there was like China that they had in the house that had turned black and also the toilet water was turning black. 
So I don't know. Maybe so they, weird. I don't know. Maybe they had a sewage problem. Like, <laughs> clean your damn toilets, Sounds bitch. Sounds like <laughs> it. <laughs> or there was just like some really haunty shit going on. Some really haunty shit going on. <laughs> anyway, whatever was in that house was terrorizing the Lutz family for weeks. But the night of January 14th, 1976 would be the final straw. This is how George described that last night. Quote, There's a storm outside which only we can hear in the house, and the windows are raging, but the lights stay on. Never went off. Never went off. We've brought Harry up and tied him to our bedroom door, because he was useless at the front door. He'd hear the front door slamming in the middle of the night, it was a very distinct sound, and he'd just be asleep right at the front door. So we figured, okay, we'll bring him up. God, give him a break. He's just a dog. I know, poor Harry. So after the stuff that went on the night before, all the screams and all the different things that went on, we wondered what happened right there. Earlier that day, Kathy had turned into an old woman. She had scratches across her stomach. And during that night, she actually lifted up a little bit off the bed about three or four inches and began to slide away from me. And I grabbed her before she went off the side. Continuing that quote, at one point I kind of sat up and let out two distinct sounds at the same time. And I knew when it was happening that it shouldn't be happening. You shouldn't be able to do this physically. One was what I described as a low volume wail that came from deep inside me what I would maybe try to describe as the core of me. And at the same time, I was saying the words in Chris's room, but I couldn't get up out of bed. I could not get out of bed and go up there. Overhead at one point, the boys' beds, you can hear them. They're, they're being lifted up and slammed back down on the floor. But I still could not get up, and Kathy wouldn't let me. Harry is walking around in circles, puking, laying down, walking circles, then puking. And there's no getting up to help him. And when that night was over, I was unable to communicate to anyone else in a rational way what had gone on. The boys came down the next morning and they still talked about this very occasionally, but they did. About what went on up there and what happened, but that's their story and I won't tell you that. That's for them to do. They're adults. But that was the end for me in terms of, I'm not afraid of this. I can deal with this. I knew then that I could not do this. After that night, George gathered the family and left the house and their belongings behind and moved in with Kathy's mother until they could kind of figure out what they were going to do next. But in the meantime, they contacted a parapsychologist named Kaplan to investigate the strange phenomena that occurred in that house. But George had explained to him that he didn't want any publicity surrounding the hauntings and was upset when Kaplan reported to the local news that he would be investigating this. So he basically said, like, you know, I don't want you to say anything to any news reporters that you're going to be checking out this house. But the strange thing is that that very same morning, George and Kathy did a press conference with the help of a man named William Weber, who just so happened to be Ronald DeFeo Jr.'s defense attorney. They had made contact with each other just a day after the Lutzes had moved out of the house. Now, the reason why Weber had met with the Lutzes is because he was told that he would get a large advance for a book and a movie deal. But Weber didn't make it obvious, and instead said that his goal was to find psychological help and treatment for the Lutz family. 
Now, in one meeting between George, Kathy, and William Weber, the group sat around a table and drank several bottles of wine. Their words, not mine. And Weber actually had photographs from the DeFeo crime scene, and the group used these to spin an exaggerated version of events that took place, with George later stating that he was not proud of this. Now, that doesn't mean that the Lutz family didn't experience any hauntings, but that they saw the, you know, financial gain that they could obtain if they made their story, like, more exciting and more sellable. And actually, once George and Kathy realized that a movie deal was being made and that a portion of the money would go to Ronald DeFeo Jr., they cut off all ties with William Weber. Like, they were not down for that, which is good. But the interest in the story obviously didn't die off, and this eventually caught the attention of famed paranormal investigators Ed and Lorraine Warren in February of 1976. So just uh, like three mo- two months after they moved in. Yeah, and if you guys don't know who Ed and Lorraine Warren are, they're they're very very famous. Um, they if you've seen The Conjuring, yeah, they were the universe. inspiration for The Conjuring, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, they've been around. They well, I think they're past now, but yeah, they're both past. Yeah, but I mean, they they did all this like paranormal investigating for many many decades. They've been involved in so many different paranormal cases. Like, guarantee there's been... It's something that you know of in your head they've worked on. So, George agreed to actually meet with Ed and Lorraine Warren at the property so that they could investigate it. But he absolutely refused to step into the house. Like, George did not want to go in there. So, that's interesting. And Lorraine Warren later said that you could feel the presence of something other than human spirits. Like, something that was much darker. She said that she brought a relic of deceased saint and priest Padre Pio into the house and that he appeared in one of the rooms. In an interview, a reporter asked Lorraine, quote, real quick, can you tell us what spirit or spirits do you think were in the Amityville house? And she, uh, she just responded, quote, evil, evil, the personification of evil. So after this, A team of psychics and parapsychologists were assembled to investigate the house further on March 6th, 1976, with Lorraine Warren in attendance. And I guess Ed was there too, um, but I I didn't see that in one of the interviews that I was watching. So they even had a news team on site to capture any strange events. But just as soon as everyone had gathered in the home, people in the group began to behave oddly. One cameraman made his way upstairs to investigate, but upon reaching the second floor, he keeled over and began clutching his chest and explained that he had stabbing pains. The team of psychics also made their way up to the second floor and felt a sense of dread hovering over the space, and one of them said that she saw a little girl's face peering through one of the upstairs windows. So scary. And she also heard the sounds of crying and weeping. The group eventually conducted a seance in the dining room of the home in which one psychic became physically ill and another claimed to see hooded figures lurking in the shadows. That's scary too. So one person in attendance had carried holy water with her and she remembers tossing some on the floor. But when the water hit the floor, she heard what sounded like water sizzling as if it had been poured onto a hot stovetop. Nothing apparently had been captured for the television crew that night, but there was one particular photo taken that still to this day cannot be explained. 
So there had been a camera set up on a tripod on the second floor that was facing toward, uh, you know, five-year-old Melissa's bedroom door, and it would take a photo every few seconds. This is actually in um, The Conjuring 1, too. They did this. So uh, later on, the crew would have these photos developed, and they all appeared to be normal, except for one photo was not. So in one photo off to the left-hand side, standing in the doorway of an adjacent bedroom is the very clear image of a little boy. Yeah, it kind of looks like he's peeking out of the bedroom. But there were no children in the house that night at all. And we will post this on our socials so you guys can take a look. I mean, it's as clear as day. Like, I'll, I'll describe it for those who can't look at it. But um, a lot of people say that it looks like John DeFeo. And there are some photo comparisons. It's, it's honestly hard to see. Basically, you can see the boy. His face is peering out the doorway above the banister and his eyes are white. And I don't know if that's from flash or whatever, but his eyes are white. And there's something actually really interesting. Do you see this above the photo like this? Um, yeah, it looked like, it looks like there's maybe like an entity in the dark space, like, um, in the doorway. Yeah. Like I'm behind the boy. You see, it kind of looks like a face with eyes and a big mouth. That's what I, yeah, that's what I'm seeing too. I don't, I mean, it, that could be something else, but that that stands out very clearly too. This is like behind the boy many feet up. But yeah, I mean, this it, it, it's extremely clear as day. It's not blurry. It's like that is, it is a child. It looks like uh, what's behind the boy is like the Babadook or something. Yeah. Oh, that's creepy. Kind of does I'm, look like that. I'm surprised. I'm just looking, now I'm looking this up and I'm surprised that no one is circling that thing that we're both seeing. So tell us, tell us what you think of that. And yeah, go look at the photo. It's very, it's very creepy. So in 1977, author Jay Anson put out his best-selling novel titled The Amityville Horror, which two years later would be adapted into the 1979 film starring James Brolin and Margot Kidder. The events of the book and film had been highly exaggerated, but he wasn't actually the first person to write about the Lutz's experience. A journalist named Paul Hoffman had wrote a feature in 1976 called uh, Life in a Haunted House for New York Sunday News and later published an article in Good Housekeeping in April of 1977 called Our Dream House Was Haunted. Now, Anson claimed that despite efforts to prove his story was a hoax, he used 35 hours worth of audio from George Lutz to create his story. He told Writer's Digest, quote, I have no idea whether the book is true or not, but I'm sure that the Lutzes believe what they told me to be true. Now, many people have speculated whether or not George and Kathy made up their haunted experience, but Kathy's own son Daniel explained that, quote, It's not easy to tell someone how you got thrown up a staircase. It's not easy telling somebody that your bed was bouncing off the ceiling. He also said, quote, I think that George's beliefs and practices and things that he was directly involved with were a catalyst for what was going on. Both Chris and Danny proclaimed that George had already been into the occult before the family had moved into the home. They explained that George was interested in anything paranormal and tried to summon the supernatural by chanting. Chris said, quote, I don't know if I'd call it black magic, but it was a way to call up spirits. 
They believe that George was responsible for whatever terrorized them in that house, but also maintained the things that they experienced were true. I think that's really interesting, though, that the kids are still saying, you know, and they weren't a part of fabricating things. Like, they are saying that this is what happened in the house, and if it's because murders took place here or if it's just because our stepdad was into some freaky shit and he summoned something. Like, I think that's a really interesting angle too, that that could be it. But that's why it's also interesting that Ronald DeFeo Jr., you know, they had claimed that he could have been possessed by a demon. So maybe there was something already there. I mean, it's just like, who knows? Yeah, it's pretty crazy. And I also read in an article that George had sued one of his stepsons later on. I don't know if it was Daniel or if it was... Chris, but it was uh, for defamation Ooh. because they were like, yeah, you're a fucking crazy guy. And like you ruined our childhood. Well, that's sad for the kids. So in the late 1980s, George and Kathy divorced, but apparently remained on good terms until Kathy died in 2004 of emphysema. And George died two years later of heart disease. After the Lutzes moved out of the Amityville house, the property went back to the bank and was eventually sold to a couple named James and Barbara Cromerty, who lived in the house for 10 whole years, saying, quote, nothing weird ever happened except for people coming by because of the book and the movie. So that's interesting, though, that they're kind of saying we didn't have anything happen. So what, did they just leave? Did the spirits just leave? Yeah, I don't know. Maybe these, uh, these like psychics that were in there wished them away or I don't know who knows who knows so the uh, the property changed owners a few more times and in 2010 a woman purchased the home for almost a million dollars and it looks like the last purchase was made in 2017 for 605,000 so much less to an unnamed buyer and as we mentioned earlier the address was changed to just keep tourists away from the property even though obviously you can look up the address. We said it earlier. Sorry about that. But, you know, it's it's on the internet. Yeah, it's it's literally out there. Yeah, So and it's it changed by four numbers. So it's not, it's not like it completely changed. But even up until their deaths, Kathy and George maintained their story of what happened to them and always dismissed the allegations of the Amityville hauntings being a hoax. So now that you have the information to make up your own mind, what do you believe? So, strangers, what did we learn today? We learned that sometimes you have to ask yourself why you're getting such a good deal. Because oftentimes, there's a catch, and you may end up with a pig ghost named Jody in your house, or a 90-year-old wife. We also learned that bigwigs can profit off of just about anything, and all it takes is a few bottles of wine and a good imagination. And bam! Movie contract! And lastly, we learned that if a priest blesses your home with holy water and a voice tells you to get out, I have a few alternative solutions for you. A, bless that shit with sage and hope for the best, or B, get the fuck out. Today's horror tip comes to us from, well, this is too easy, the Amityville Horror, of course. If you wake up at 3.15 every night, like me, just like throw away all your clocks. You know, you may still levitate off your bed, but the problem is mostly solved without the clocks, right? You're welcome. Yeah, absolutely. Or just suffer like me and lay in bed in fear until it's 3.16. Yeah, just wait till 3.16. You'll be fine.
Thank you so much, everybody, for listening to this episode of The Dark Part. Yes, thank you so much. Thank you also to everybody who came over from Going West to check out the show with this kind of duo episode. What do we call it? Not the duo old episode. double feature. The old double feature. There we go. That's way better. Yeah, I'm so glad we did this because it was so fun just to go from... You know, the murders, the hauntings. So cool. What well, a great idea. Yeah. So thank you again, Justin, for recommending this marvelous idea. And somebody else actually recommended uh, another case that's like that, where it's murders and then there's hauntings that follow it. So I'm down to do this once in a while. If you down guys to are clown. Down. Yeah, yeah, let's get into it. Absolutely. Yeah. So thank you guys, everybody also who just listens to the dark parts. We really appreciate you guys. Um, hope you're enjoying the potentially spooky kind of cold, rainy weather, depending on where you live in the world and are enjoying your November thus far. Yeah. And please make sure that you uh, go subscribe to the dark parts. That's important. And also make sure that you share the show because we really want to get this show out there. I know we've said this uh, on the last episode. In the last episode. Yeah, in the last one before <laughs> that, in the last one before But we love doing this show. It's so much fun. Um, yeah, so please share and leave us a review if you want to. All right, guys. We'll see you next time. In the dark parts. <laughs> <laughs>